I know it's been a couple of weeks since we did the science of cravings part one, but just as a quick review, uh, that particular study was actually mentioned in this study at one point in terms of looking at how physiologically we, we encounter cravings. And that particular study looked at why we may not crave fat, but we crave carbs. I think that's kind of obvious, but they went through those mechanisms and the fact that when we crave carbs or we consume carbs that have high fat content, then of course that's, that's kind of the perfect storm because now you have what has very low thermic effect and, and can pack in the caloric density very quickly. And, and that's what tends to cause problems. A lot of people who crave carbs and then consume just clean, healthy carbs like fruit or something, you're never going to see an obesity problem with, with that. But this particular study outside of those mechanisms of the whole, uh, you know, we went through things from, you know, the taste buds and so forth, taste receptors to um, the hypothalamus and controlling hunger. That, that would be a really good one to review. Anybody later who's viewing this, if, if you are seeing this cold for the first time, you may want to go to our folder where we have all of the research reviews and look at the science of cravings one, just to go over some more of that physiology. But this particular study uh, appropriately is in the Journal of Appetite. The more you get into research, the more you see like, wow, there are a lot of people doing very, very finely tuned research, an entire journal just to the, the uh, topic of appetite. But check out this title, Food Cravings Discriminate Differentially Between Successful and Unsuccessful Dieters and Non-Dieters. Validation of the Food Cravings Questionnaires in German. So interestingly, this title is slightly misleading because I think they should have posed it as a question. Do food cravings discriminate differentially between successful and unsuccessful dieters and non-dieters? I almost think that was kind of lost in translation as, as you'll see why when we get to the conclusion. But let me explain how they put this study together. As a questionnaire study, they you have to be as specific as possible. And only when you get into how many different ways of doing survey studies, do you see why that's important, especially through the statistical analysis. So off camera, I was joking that this is a really, really tough study to get through because it's just so much statistical data. Uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of breeze through that as quickly as I can to get us to some of the application points. Uh, I, I think if you, even if you went and looked at this study yourself, I think it would seem kind of boring without just looking at the actual survey itself, kind of just trying to understand their statistical analysis and then going to the discussion section, which, which is where I want to spend most of our time for those reasons. But this particular uh, questionnaire and, and food cravings questionnaires is, is a, an actual topic of study in this field. And there are several types of questionnaires that have been proposed, several have been studied, and there's enough research on them individually where some of them are cited more heavily than others. Other people have tried to kind of see which ones really do create the most valid uh, applicable research. And, and the one that they wanted to hone in on here, and they wanted to test it, they, they did some preliminary reviewing as, I mean, the researchers are, are in the flow of all this information anyway. And, and they, they, they started with this particular uh, questionnaire because it differentiated between a, a personality trait that they could identify and more of a circumstantial state. 
So uh, I think I even have this on my other computer here. I may, I may read you some of the survey questions just to give you an example of how these are different. But um, so think of it like this. If, if, you're, if you're doing some kind of a Likert scale survey and you say, uh, let me, I'll just read one of these questions for you. I hate it when I give into cravings, you know, and then you'd say, you know, all the time, sometimes neutral, not much of the time, never at all, you know, that kind of a survey. So they, they really wanted to test in the entire topic of food cravings, you know, how much of it is determined by our own personality trait, what we believe about ourselves, and then what we believe about that context or that circumstance where we find ourselves. So they wanted to pick apart this particular study because, or this particular questionnaire. This questionnaire uses both. And they wanted to see, you know, maybe just one half of that test or one part of that test is more valid, or maybe it is important to look at them together. And then remember their entire question to be studied is, can you use a survey like this, this one in particular being studied, to differentiate, to predict if somebody will be a successful dieter or if they will be an unsuccessful dieter? So are there certain states, are there certain circumstances we find ourselves in? That, and if we're in those states more often, then that's going to predictively you know, tell us whether we're going to fail or succeed at dieting, or does it come down to just our personality traits? So uh, interestingly, right out of the bat, and I, I like this, and I think by the end of the study analysis, you will too, trait versions or, or trait qualifications have higher retest reliability. So right off the bat, they're saying the reason we picked this questionnaire to really look at is because we, we think we already see, and we wanna do this, this research to, to prove it or disprove it, that personality trait may mean more as a predictive element of somebody's success. So, uh, just this one quote I have bolded at the bottom here, distinct dimensions of food cravings are differently related to success and failure in dieting. So we know that, and we want to try and see, you know, if we can find out which ones of those traits really matter most. So, so some of the things I just took right out of the, the study, because I wanted to make sure we can, uh, I got to pull this video screen down a little bit, because I wanted to make sure we could, um, talk about the things that are most important, the definitions basically of cravings. Craving is an intense desire or longing for particular substances. So I think you can see that's a broad swath of things you could have a craving for. But when it comes down to food, characterized by both appetite and aversive components. So we crave certain things. And then we know through our insular cortex, you know, we're repulsed by certain things. And some things that we're more heavily repulsed from, you know, we, we have stronger cravings for the opposite. Uh, cravings can be viewed analogous to emotions and motivational significance. So there's a strong component, you know, there's an emotionally charged part of how intense our cravings are. So, uh, you know, who hasn't talked about stress eating and emotional eating and so forth. And then, of course, you guys all know this, cravings differ from hunger. Um, you know, there's physiological hunger due to those physiological impact points like low blood sugar and, and maybe even low body fat cell volume and so forth. Whereas cravings, you know, do more stem from that intense emotional desire. 
So one thing they picked apart and they addressed this a couple of different ways is that nutritional deprivation can increase food cravings, but not necessarily. So in other words, if we're really in a caloric deficit, if we're just, we're not getting a certain food, like we really love this one particular food, but we're rigidly abstaining from it. Um, they say that can have an effect, but it's not quite as much a driving factor as you might think. Psychological factors like external and emotional eating are more strongly related to food cravings than dietary restraint or daily caloric intake. So that's an important thing to keep in mind because a lot of us talk about when we're really dieting aggressively, when our body fat's really low, uh, remember how we constantly juxtapose the phrase, the phrase is, it's all about the food and it's not about the food. And there are different context points to where each one of those things can be completely true, even though they're opposite. Uh, so you, I think you're gonna see that come into play here as well. Um, these, these particular, um, things that they were looking at that, you know, the state versus straight, or I should say some of the questionnaires that these different types of food cravings questionnaires, uh, the one we're going to look at today, of course, as I said, you know, compare state and trait, there are some, which I found very interesting that have been wholly dedicated to chocolate. So imagine that we are just going to look at why humans crave chocolate. Uh, then uh, some questionnaires have looked at the personality characteristics of approach and avoidance. Are you somebody who approaches things or avoids things? You know, you run to, um, you know, certain emotional contexts and away from others. Uh, you know, we, we tend to be one or the other. Uh, there have been entire questionnaires about guilt and shame. Uh, we went over this one two weeks ago that is looking at fat versus sugar in more of a physiological context. But let's get into what uh, what this particular study wanted to look at, which is the, the personality trait versus contextual state. Um, trait version. So when you just look at the trait side of this particular questionnaire, they're looking at uh, disinhibited eating behavior, habitual hunger ratings, eating disorder symptoms, sensitivity to reward, body mass index. And I'll go over those a little bit each at a time because I want you to see what they were actually questioning. Uh, so, so things like positive and negative reinforcement of food. There are some questions uh, where they, they, they ask a question like, when you eat a certain food, do you anticipate a feeling of reward? Like, oh my gosh, I can't wait. This is my favorite food. Man, when I get that birthday cake or when I get that cheeseburger or whatever it is, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to feel so good. I can't wait. Or do you, when you eat a certain food, do you always feel guilt and shame? Do you feel remorse? Do you feel like this is going to have a negative impact on me in some way? So, so those are the disinhibited uh you know, eating behaviors and the sensitivity to reward uh, body mass index, does that actually have a correlation? So if I'm at a 30 BMI or a 20, does that change my, my trait versions and attitudes toward food, towards cravings? Does that actually change the way I crave food? If I'm, if I'm running around and I'm at 4% body fat and I feel great and so forth, does that, does that change my craving status? Um, eating disorders, huge. I mean, this gets into a lot of things. We're not talking about eating disorders, but you, you cannot study cravings or, or food intake without at least in a cursory way, looking at, you know, if, if you have the tendency toward those kind of, of disordered eating behaviors, 
does that affect how you even perceive cravings? One of our research reviews we did showed absolutely that's true. And I think that's kind of obvious, but it still needs to be verified. And, and so that tends to um, almost disassociate yourself from your body. You don't have those, those enteric cues. You, you tend to catastrophize things and so forth. But these are the things that you can look at through trait, uh, personality trait study. So a couple things here, I just snipped right out of the study because I, I just think they're, they're too important to, to not quote perfectly. So based on these findings, we expected the, the FCQ trait uh, portion of the study to be associated with a loss of control in eating behavior as an indicator of convergent validity. So when, when people have a, a loss of control, when they feel like they you know, they're just, their cravings are out of control. They thought that would be a, a huge factor. Like that's going to be the, the bullseye. And, and we're going to be able to center the whole study around that. Specifically, we expected food cravings to be highly correlated with self-reported binge eating, food addiction symptoms, low perceived self-regulatory success in dieting and dieting strategy that are previously connected to low dieting success. So again, it's kind of stating the obvious, but they wanted to see if there were just certain personality traits that have already been, as, as this indicates, already been associated with, with those low perceived self-regulatory successes and so forth, and even binge eating, are those things we can isolate and say those people will therefore have more cravings. So that's another important part of, of the test or the questionnaire. So then the, the state side, so remember, that's just personality trait. So now you get to the state side. Uh, we expected the, the, uh, the state, the FCQ state to be positively correlated with the hours that have elapsed since the last meal. So again, the state, the context. So we expected that if you haven't eaten for six hours, you're going to have more cravings than if you haven't eaten for three hours. Uh, furthermore, we also predicted current cravings to be associated with less positive and more negative current affect because mood is suggested as a possible antecedent or consequence of craving. So, uh, you know, the, the term hangry, if, uh, if you are so hungry that even your emotional status is kind of going off the rails, does that make you crave certain foods? At that point, would you crave one food over another? And how would you report those? So, so here's, here's how they created this entire study. Here's the methodology. Uh, this was done in German, in, in Germany. And uh, so it had to be translated into uh, English. But they, they put this out there. They, they, they sent it to several student councils over several uh, German universities. And they had about 1,600, a little more than that, people kind of respond, dig in, look around, see if they wanted to participate in this site. I think they were attracting people by not just paying every participant, but they had like a random drawing, like, you know, we're going to draw names and five people will win a hundred bucks or something. Um, but they ended up with 616 return surveys, almost 76% were women, uh, body mass index was pretty good, 22.3 and the mean average 24 and a half years old. So I think that's kind of important because you're dealing with however you want to interpret, you know, good. Uh, young people, uh, perhaps not people mired down by decades of, uh, you know, body fat gain with, with just season of life change and so forth. So these are pretty, pretty young people, you know, kind of fresh, so to speak, uh, at, at a mean body mass index of 22, 
you know, not a lot of them had to be struggling with, with obesity or being overweight. And so again, probably a pretty good way to just survey food cravings, if, if that makes sense. So um, this, the, the, the questionnaire divided again into trait and state. The trait side had 39 items or 39 specific questions that they wanted to investigate. And they're, they're very similar. So when I flip over to the next side, you'll see that the state side, even though there are only 15 items, you know, they're looking at some of the same questions, very, very just nuanced changes just in how they ask the question. So one may be, let me think of a way to ask this. If I'm talking about, let me see, I'm, I'm going to actually go to this. So uh, I feel like I have food on my mind all the time. So that's a trait question. It's really asking about me. It, it, they didn't put me in a certain context. You know, I, I think about food all the time if I haven't eaten all day or if I've been studying all night for an exam. You know, that's a state question. That's put you in a certain context. But they, they wanted to look at your intentions and plans to consume food, anticipation of positive reinforcement or negative states, lack of control, food preoccupation, uh, emotion, guilt, cues, all of that. And then on the other side, just some of the things that they, they changed the, the nuance a little bit were, you know, desire, positive reinforcements, lack of control, hunger. You know, the, these were these had a little bit more of that contextual feel to it. They had to add that layer in to differentiate the two. So when, when we look again at how they constructed this whole study, this is what was really impressive to me about this study, as well as a couple of things I'll point out coming up. Uh, as a non-researcher, uh, I consume research, I, I interpret it, and I look at other people's interpretations and I compare them to other studies and meta-analyses. But outside of a couple little things I've done in grad schools, I, I did, it's not part of my regular life to actually dive in and do research. So I learn a lot about methodology through reviewing what other people have done. This particular study, they said, okay, here's this questionnaire that's already out there. Somebody else created this thing. It's been used in other studies. It's been verified. We're using it because it's, it's trusted. And yet, just to make sure we've got some backup on our own study, they had these particular students uh, go through, I think it ends up at eight or nine when you see the next slide, other questionnaires. So they said, okay, here's the main questionnaire. And while we've got you here, answer a couple of these other questions. And some of these, again, these are all very well-established studies, but they use them to just double check to make sure that their analysis was as, as good as it could be. And you'll see how that increased their P-score values and, and internal validation later on. But uh, I'm just gonna mention these briefly and they're kind of self-explanatory. The Yale food addiction scale, restraint scale, subscale, concern for dieting, perceived self-regulatory success in dieting, flexible and rigid control of eating behavior, eating disorder examination. So here is our trait and state questionnaire. This is where we're gonna give you all of these questions. But just to kind of double check to make sure your answers were what we think they were, we're going to double check them with how you answer these over here, because these are all backups of some of the things that they're looking at in their main study. So that was convergent, meaning things that actually support. So, so those are all convergent. 
These are divergent, meaning we're going to see if you've answered things that we think are, are inappropriate or don't match. So the Mannheimer craving scale, Barat impulsiveness scale, behavioral ambition system, behavioral activation system, positive negative affect schedule. So you get all of those things kind of looking at the attitudes toward your own eating cravings, personality traits. When you look at impulsiveness scale, that kind of thing. Um, anyway, I just thought that was super, super interesting. But here we're going to get into some of the results. So the, the psychometric analysis, when they say, okay, we're going to run this through the SSPS software, we're going to have all of our, our great statisticians, all of the, the nerds with the protractors or the calculators, and we're going to just kind of run this through and see what happens. Uh, because again, you can, it, it's really hard. I mean, all that joking aside to say, okay, here's how they answered these questions, but how do we analyze that in, in, in statistics? is a field of study that gives just massive, massive, massive layered and categorized, um, you know, just reinforcement of, of what you're finding. And, and sometimes due to the statistical analysis, they'll say, well, these two things aren't even correlated. And so this study was not even really valid. Or you, you ask this question in such a way that we can't give some kind of a, a predictive analytical statement. And so it's really important that you design your study in a way and, and even in a survey, your questions, so that you're really testing and, and interpreting what is presented to you. You're getting those answers right in a way that makes sense and can be retested and validated. And so here's what they came out with. Out of all of the ways that they answered these questions, when they're looking at things like cues and emotions and hunger, positive, negative reinforcement, all those things we talked about, they said there were six factors that explain 64.6 of the variance. So in other words, with, with a P-score, an internal consistency score of 0.96, so, so there is a 96% chance that what we are telling you here is accurate. Like even that is tested in, in survey research. And so what they decided was that cues, emotions, and hunger we're all, you know, so consistently replicated that we can use those questions and, and they stand alone. But when you look at positive and negative reinforcement, they were so overlapped that it's just better to combine them because somebody's positive reinforcement answers and negative reinforcement were always in line. And so we can basically combine that and it makes our study easier to understand. Thoughts and guilt were combined, which I think makes sense. And intent, this is what I want to do, but then my lack of control, my ability to do that, those were all, those also ended up being combined to, to make sure that they're really able to answer the questions they asked. So those were on the trait side. On the, uh, on the state side, uh, you know, the, the hunger again could be replicated, positive, negative reinforcement were combined, and then desire or intent and lack of control were also combined again. So, uh, you know, some great homogeneous consistency between those two. So this is all, if you're, a, if you're a statistician, you'd be happy with this information. That all looks good. We can continue with, with the analysis. It looks like in the execution of the survey, in our interpretation of the answers, we really have something here. You know, we, we, we're kind of reshuffling the deck a little bit to make sure we're asking and answering or at least lumping those questions together in the right way, but, but everything's looking good so far. 
Uh, now, when you look at the construct validity, or validity uh, they're looking at, you know, are there things that, that really can and can't, is there any part of the study that we just have to throw out? Like the construction of the study, just make, may, maybe this has some value, but we kind of need to disregard this. And they found that that hunger again was was a really high correlation. So when we look at somebody's personality trait and how they deal with hunger, and we look at their state, you know what context they're in, hunger was was very consistently answered appropriately with our hypothesis, which is can we remember the whole state or, or the whole process of this study is can we use state and trait to differentiate who's going to succeed and who's going to fail? And so the, the, the positive and negative reinforcement, it, it, you know, those have been combined already through the whole thing. You know, that was, again, a very high percent of it. These three factors explain 70% of the differentiation and then desire and lack of control. So you can see that we've now synthesized these things down to the fact that these three groupings are 70% of the ball game. If we're gonna answer the question, can state or trait predict somebody's success or lack of success? We know that there is a 70%, these three groupings tell us 70% of the story. So if, if I look at somebody watching this and, and, and we took you through that entire same analysis, that questionnaire, we can look at these three groupings and say, this is going to tell us, like, however you answer these three groupings of questions, this is going to tell us whether you're going to be a successful or not a successful dieter. So now I'm going to get into some of these discussion points, and then we're going to watch a quick video. I hope that works. Um, I think it worked last time we tried it. And then uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit. So the, uh, the food cravings questionnaire trait part of the questionnaire was positively associated with eating behaviors that are related to a loss of control over eating, uh, restrained eating, binge eating, food addiction, low success in dieting, BMI, confirming convergent validity. So let's stop right there for a second. So the trait side of the scale, just knowing what your personality traits are like were associated, positively associated, meaning we know they have some impact, they have a, a replicatable impact with eating behaviors related to loss of control. So they're saying that, Joe, I don't know, you know, you may be a really high compulsive person or impulsive person, or you may be somebody who's like really type A, strict, controlled, everything's controlled by a spreadsheet in your life. And they're saying, okay, those traits are definitely a huge factor in controlling overeating. Uh, rigid control strategies of eating behaviors was, were associated with increased food cravings. So look, this is another huge point. When you have rigidity, as I just kind of broke apart two possible personality traits, somebody with the highest sense of rigidity, oh, I can't eat that, that's not on my diet, Carbs are awful. You can't eat carbs. Oh, I could never eat any sugar. That's awful. I would never do that. Those are the people who have the highest cravings. Remember, that's what we're looking at in this particular study. It's cravings. And cravings will often lead to increased food intake, which, which we'll discuss here at the end. 
but but just for the sense of cravings, who's feeling those psychological cravings? The people who are <clears throat> the most rigid in their behavior, in their anticipations. So uh, to continue that sentence, whereas there was no such relationship between food cravings and flexible control of eating behavior. Oh, lo and behold, flexible dieting shows up. All of a sudden, when somebody doesn't have that overall crushing pressure of what you can and can't eat, all of a sudden we cannot, we cannot apply this study to those people. There is not a positive correlation to those people who diet flexibly. So that's another huge takeaway. If you want to reduce cravings or, or not have cravings be the controller of your predictive success or lack of success, being a flexible dieter is the lane you have to be in. That's, that's a huge point in, in this study. Uh, one possible mediator could be the experience of food cravings that are fostered by rigid eating behavior. It's kind of a restatement. Um, I can move on to that next one. That's just a little redundant. So then here's another point. Small correlations were found between the food cravings questionnaire trait and substance craving. The, uh, the MACS, which I forget what that one was, that maybe that Mannheimer, um, instructs participants to think of any addictive substance when indicating a craving. Here we speculate that participants including included food as an addictive substance, especially because this whole thing was about food and food cravings. Accordingly, it's been found that the terms craving and addiction are used for food and drug alike in general population. It accords with a crucial role of cravings in impulses, in impulse behaviors like food and drug addiction, impulsivity was associated with food cravings. So that's why I said two slides ago when I made up my little mock personality trait groupings, somebody who feels really controlled by that rigid thinking, again, you know, that's going to increase these cravings. But what they're saying here is that those people have a tendency to even go a step further. People will use that, that phrase differently. I, I have cravings may mean just a state type situation. I, I crave food in these states. When I, when I hit my, you know, this part in my premenstrual cycle, I have cravings. Uh, whenever I walk by a bread store and I smell that smell, I I have cravings. But when somebody flips over and starts using that word addiction, now you're back over into the trait side where there is a certain personality that will use that kind of nomenclature to describe their cravings. Like I'm addicted to that food and I can't stay away from it. So now looking a little bit on the state side, Hours elapsed since the last meal were positively associated with state cravings. And that, that has been shown in other studies. So again, you know, the longer I, the longer I spend between meals and I let myself get maybe too hungry um, in one of my books, I've used the phrase stay ahead of hunger. You know, that can be an important diet strategy. Um, but here's an interesting second statement. However, correlations between state cravings an effective state indicate also that, that factors other than hunger modulated current cravings. So you breaking this apart even further, when you say, okay, now that you're six hours after meal or nine hours or 12 hours after meal, we all may feel cravings, but who is the person who reports more of a catastrophic craving? And they may say things like, I always give into those cravings, or I can't resist those cravings. 
that does not any longer have to do with your personality. I'm sorry, it doesn't have to do with that state, but it has more to do, again, with your personality. Um, I can't wait to show you guys this video. It has nothing to do with this particular study, but it kind of has everything to do with this study. As I hope you're seeing, I keep trying to repeat this, but coming back to the trait side, the personality trait is kind of the, the whole thing. You know, that's that's what they're going to be leading toward. So one further discussion point, we found that dieters, regardless of being successful or unsuccessful in their pursuit, experience more cravings that are related to a preoccupation with food and guilt from cravings or forgiving them. So in other words, regardless of being successful or unsuccessful, like you've, you, you get lean whenever you want, you stay lean, you're a successful maintainer, or you are not, we all experience those cravings, but those who are unsuccessful report a higher level of preoccupation. So those are the people, again, it makes sense. Like if you just have, have psyched yourself into the state that you're always thinking about food and, and why would we do that? because of rigid dieting, because of too high of expectations, because of pursuits that maybe aren't necessarily in our best interest. There are all kinds of behavioral factors that make us preoccupied with food, but it still all points to a certain type of personality characteristic that, that makes us that person. Uh, moreover, unsuccessful dieters reported more food cravings that were related to lack of control. So these are the people who say, yeah, I suck at this. I can never, it goes back to kind of the Stanford marshmallow study. Like I'm not somebody who can withstand these cravings. When we tell ourselves that already as a self-fulfilling prophecy, it tends to be true. Um, then they just talked a little bit about how this study was a little different than some of the other ones that have been done. Okay. So now this is it. I, I feel like we should have a drum roll here. I need everybody to put your phones down, put your pencils down. This, this is the statement that's going to sum up the entire study. While the food cravings questionnaire state also discriminated between dieters and non-dieters, successful and unsuccessful dieters could not be discriminated. So in those states, when we are all in a certain state, whether you're a successful or unsuccessful, unsuccessful dieter, you could not tell a difference. Specifically, the state scale was not able to identify one single successful dieter. So in all of these questions being asked, also validated by those extra eight or nine correlative study questionnaires that were applied to them, run through all of these statistical analysis, the statistical software could not identify. This is like artificial intelligence level stuff. They could not look through any of this data. They could not look through any of it and pick out one single successful dieter. Guess what that means? This finding corresponds to results showing that the state is also related to dysfunctional eating behavior, but the relationship is attenuated. Furthermore, it shows that successful and unsuccessful dieters do not differ in their current experiences of cravings. This, again, is all on the state side, not, not the whole not, not the trait side, but just the state questions. When we're asking in this circumstance, how do you experience cravings? In this circumstance, how do you experience cravings? In this circumstance, how do you predict you would do? So again, on the state side, the software could not pick out one single difference. 
successful dieters may be, may be as susceptible as unsuccessful dieters to allurements of food, but possess mechanisms that enable them to resist those temptations. So in other words, every single one of us, whether you are a successful or an unsuccessful dieter, we all experience the same cravings in the same way, and we report them the same. And yet, just like the marshmallow study at Stanford, seminal classic study, those people who are successful simply possess mechanisms, another word for personality traits, that enable them to resist those temptations. That's okay. We're going to talk about that. Just keep that in mind. So, so why? So why would that be the case? Why do cravings have zero bearing on any of us? Like we all experience the same cravings in the same way. And yet one single group can be identified. These people experiencing the cravings will succeed. These people will not succeed. And it all comes down to personality traits. So does that mean that, okay, I'm just born with those traits or, I, or I'm not, and therefore I'm going to be successful or I'm not? A lot of people lay down and die right there. Or you can say, well, what are those traits? Maybe I should kind of work on that in my own life. Maybe there's a way I can create some of this change. Maybe it may take some therapeutic intervention. Maybe it may take something. But if these people can respond this way, can I learn how to respond that way? Can I make a change? So let's, uh, let, me, let me stop sharing this screen and I'm gonna share a different one. Oops, that's, that's you guys. I can't share you guys to you guys. Okay, so I'm gonna need like a thumbs up here. Um, from you guys to let me know if you can hear this. And if you can't, I'll stop and I'll unplug my microphone because that, that may be the issue. So stand by. Okay, you guys cannot hear that, can you? Because I cannot hear it. Okay, let me unplug my microphone here. See if that's the problem. It's not pleasures. The problem you guys hear that? Okay. Pleasure experienced without prior requirement for pursuit is the problem. This is a really, I'm going to point out a couple of important statements. When he says pleasure is not the problem, that next line explains the entire dopaminergic system. I'm going to just preempt for this reason. When we talk about dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter that is all geared toward reward, and so we think if you have, if your dopamine system is working right and you 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 love like reward, like we 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 achieve goals, it is never about the goal; it's about the pursuit of the goal. The entire dopamine system is driven on pursuit, not actually catching the prey the pursuit of the prey. So, so I just want to say that. And now you guys watch this whole six minute segment. Is that pleasure experienced without prior requirement for pursuit is terrible for us. It's terrible for us as individuals. It's terrible for us as, as groups. And I, I have great confidence in the human species to work this out, but we are finding now, and we are going to increasingly find that those who will be successful, young or old, 
are going to be those people who can create their own internal buffers. They're going to be able to control their relationship to pleasures because the proximity to pleasures and their availability is the problem. If you look at the increase in use of uh, drugs of abuse or prescription medication, which at least at the first pass deliver pleasure, pain relief, the whole issue with the opioid crisis and, and dopaminergic drugs like Ritalin, Adderall, you know, there is sometimes is a clinical need, but tons of people are taking those recreationally now or to study huge dopamine increases are what those cause. That is a problem. That's a serious problem because it creates a cycle where you, you need more of that specific thing. I would say addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you. Okay. I'm going to stop you right there. That's another important line. Addiction is a progressive narrowing of what brings you pleasure, food included. Addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring us pleasure. So in other words, my pursuit of pleasure, which could be cravings, could be food. That's what we're talking about today. If I, if, if it just gets so narrow, if I'm constantly, 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 remember the, remember part of this study was preoccupation with food the thoughts of positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement of food. So those preoccupational thoughts and, and binging, 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 it's that progressive narrowing that, that is the problem. Pleasure. And, you know, and I don't like to comment too much on enlightenment because, you know, I don't really know what that is as a neurobiologist, but a good life, we could say, is a progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. And even better is a good life is a progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure and includes pleasure through motivation and hard work and understanding this pain pleasure balance whereby if you experience pain and you can continue to be in that friction and, and exert effort, the rewards are that much greater when they arrive. And so if you look at any drug of abuse or any situation where somebody isn't motivated or thinks that, now, they may have clinically diagnosed attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but a lot of what people think is ADHD, it turns out, is people just over-consuming dopamine from various sources. And then, and also the context within a, a TikTok feed is the context switch is insane. The brain has never seen, first of all, this is the first time in human evolution that we wrote with our thumbs, but that's a pretty benign shift. And then the other shift is normally you walk from one room to another or from a field into the trees or from a hut into or a house or whatever it is. But now you can get 10,000 context switches in that 30 minutes of scrolling on Instagram or TikTok. And so it's all about self-regulation. Well, how do you self-regulate? How do kids self-regulate? Well, this is my hope. And one of the reasons I've gotten excited about public education and teaching neuroscience is that this is a place where knowledge of knowledge actually can allow oneself to intervene. When you think, I'm feeling low, I don't feel good, nothing really feels like good. Am I depressed? Maybe, but maybe you're just, you've saturated the dopamine circuits. You're now in the pain part of things. What do you do? Well, you have to stop. You need, you need to replenish dopamine. You need to stop engaging with this behavior, and then your pleasure for it will come back. But you have to constantly control the hinge. It's not just about being back and forth on the seesaw. You have to make sure the hinge doesn't get stuck in pain or in pleasure. We often think about the extremes of addiction, and those are really severe. But we also have to think about the more subtle forms of something we really love, but indulging in it just a little too often so that it no longer has that edge. You know, there have been really good studies of people who jump out of airplanes with parachutes. You know, I, I'm sure it's a lot of fun. It looks like a thrill. But people do it over and over and over again, often die doing other things. They often become drug addicts because it's a really? huge high. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of that. And, you know, there, there are a lot of examples of this. I mean, you can get addicted to anything. The key is to regulate that behavior. So you asked what, you know, what should people do? Well, certainly I'm trying this now and I have some good examples. Some young people I know and work with are taking breaks from not just social media, but no cell phone whatsoever. I'm actually trying a, an odd experiment, which is for the first hour of every day, no phone. Learning how to keep that no-go, don't circuitry, as we could call it, uh, tuned up is very important. And so many times throughout the day, but I try and get 25 a day where I actively refrain from doing something that I impulsively want to do. Could be looking at my phone, but it could even be something trivial. Like I want to walk to the kitchen and get a glass of water. So I'm actively engaging in action-based denial. So restricting my behavior in some way as a way of keeping these dopamine circuits tuned up. Also not looking at my phone first thing in the morning for an hour, because knowing what we now know about the second phase of sleep and REM sleep being more predominant, the second wave of sleep and the fact that you're working through a lot of emotional and logistical contingencies, you're reshaping your brain in sleep. That's when neuroplasticity occurs during sleep. It's triggered in wakefulness, but it actually takes place in sleep, especially that second half of sleep. When you wake up in the morning, you are in a perfect position to what I call receive the download of all the work that your neural circuitry has been doing the night before. But if you immediately go to a sensory experience, especially a rich sensory experience of stuff scrolling by, you're actually missing the information that you processed at night. And even more importantly, that second half of the night during REM sleep is when the emotional weight of things becomes, let's say, you put it on the shelf properly. Things that are important to emotional, emotionally register, get put in one shelf. Things that were like the comment you got on Twitter that was triggering, doesn't seem like such a big deal after a good night's sleep. And that's because that second half of sleep is actually when you re-experience these things, but your body can't secrete adrenaline. It's kind of an internal form of therapy or even trauma therapy. And that's why people who don't get that sleep are very, you know, they're easily agitated. They feel like the world is crushing down on them. So when I wake up in the morning, I want to receive ideas that I want to learn from my learning. And if you take in new information, you are not in a position to do that. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about this. One of the things I wanted to point out and why I wanted to share that video clip with this topic is the entire concept that all of what we achieve, whether we are successful or not, whether we're successful dieters, not as this study said, it's all on the trait side. Remember the, the statistical analysis showed that they could not from a state perspective in any context, they, you know, the AI could not pick out one single, one single difference between successful and unsuccessful dieters, but it all fell on the trait side. And we saw all of those reasons why, but when you look at the traits where people who are super impulsive and rigid and all or nothing, black or white, those are the ones who tend to fail. It, it comes down to what Dr. Huberman just said there, which is that, that dopaminergic saturation that you think everything is in the goal acquisition. Remember how we constantly talk about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, this goes right back into that bucket. When you think everything is related to that goal, you will never succeed. When you know that everything good happens in the pursuit, in the hard work, in the self-change that leads to that goal, that's when it happens. You have already become that successful person before you achieve the goal. Because you started adopting and acquiring and managing and facilitating those particular traits 
that successful people have. And again, neuroplasticity doesn't happen in an instance. You start working on it. You start opening your mind up to it. You start allowing your curiosity to, to open yourself to new possibilities and you become an entirely different person. Um, I, I was, you know, this, this particular friend of mine, who's a mental health therapist, I've mentioned him a couple of times, uh, we were together again this morning and he, and we were talking about how that, yeah, like, like he said, Joe, you are a totally different person than you were 20 years ago. And like, like, you know, you were a completely judgmental asshole prick overbearing guy. And now you're like the Buddha. Like I can't even get you riled up now if I wanted to. And so we talked about life changes and perspective changes that happened. And it wasn't just like one day I woke up and decided to be that person, right? It be, it's a process of letting life shape you in a way that you want to be shaped, seeking those experiences that you want to be shaped by and embracing that. You become that person you want to be. When it comes to goal acquisition, again, dieting, body composition, which through this particular study is all about cravings. The craving was the symptom. The craving is, you know, we're all going to feel those cravings. We're, we're all going to experience them the same way. Why do some people take that next step to catastrophize those cravings? Oh my gosh, I'm, it's not just a craving, it's an addiction. And oh my gosh, I can't ever withstand that. I always give in. I'm always preoccupied with food. It all filters through cravings up to the point where it just simply shows symptomatically that you have those personality traits of somebody who thinks that to win, to finally get over this hump and control your body comp is something that you finally win. You achieve it because you got to a certain body fat, you attained a certain status, you look a certain way. And I said, no, it's quite a bit easier than that. You just become that person who doesn't allow yourself to get preoccupied in oversaturated and rigid and dogmatic thinking toward food. You start becoming that person who says, of course I can have ice cream. I, I have it you know, once a week and I have this, this much of it. And of course I can have this or that, but here's how I manage that because this is what's responsible. Instead of an emotional catastrophic state, it's just a productive part of your knowledge. It's, it's now a personality trait. And, and the important thing about that dopamine is because he said, when you constantly need the actual feeling of, of winning, that's when you're saturating your body with the dopamine and you or your brain, and you never get the chance to just sit there and enjoy the work that it takes to get there. So it all comes back down. The precursor to uh, dopamine is Delta Fos B. And even in studies with other addictions, like, like, like pornography addictions and so forth, there was a massive uh, change. This is, this is a little bit of a weird correlation, but there was a massive change when, when you, could, you could only view pornography by finding a Playboy magazine under your dad's mattress, right? So you're a 14-year-old kid, and it's like, that's what you had to do. You had to wait until your dad was, was gone. And it's like, you're calling your friends over and like everybody, like, it, like that was a big deal. Now, how many nine-year-olds are just like flip, 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 flip. I want this. I want that. Oh, I don't like that scene. I don't like, oh, I don't like blondes. I like brunettes. I like this. I like that. As soon as you went to, there was even a massive correlation to high-speed internet, where again, you could flip through these contexts 
And there are 20 year old, there are teenage boys who are now impotent because they have completely fried their dopaminergic system. There's now no pursuit and gain and work and social activation to get the reward. It's just there at, the, at your fingertip. The same thing with food. Now that we can get food anywhere we want, I can go to any corner and find a McDonald's. I can get anything. I can load my refrigerator with it. All I have to do is go engage in a binge right now. And I'm not giving myself, I'm either giving myself no requisite. It's just always there and I can binge when I want, or I do the opposite and I refrain from it in a very rigid way. So now I'm always preoccupied by it. Again, it's just that constant flooding of dopamine without ever letting your body get to a point where it's like, oh, that's how I get that reward. That's when I get that reward. And this is, I'm the kind of person who executes it, executes it that way because that's the kind of person I am. It aligns with my goals. So anyway, you guys have the floor. Any, any questions about the study or that it, this entire just, just field of topic? Because it, it kind of touches on almost everything we've ever talked about in, this, in these research reviews. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I think it's good news. Because as a coach, I'm thinking my job is to teach people emotional intelligence as it relates to uh, uh, health and diet and exercise. And those traits can be learned. I mean, granted, some people have, you know, cut that off, uh, but that's, that's, that's the rare extreme. And so, you know, the more I listen to this, the more I think, that's where, the, that's where your real value to your client comes into play, where you teach them how to develop that, the traits, the habits, the, the behaviors, the actions uh, that you know how to do. And that's pretty exciting. And I think that's good news. So that's my comment. Well, the only thing I will disagree with you on, Dan, is that it's easy. It is good news. But it's, it's definitely not easy because there are those people, yes. if they don't already know this, they, they will either argue. I've had clients who just argue like, no, Joe, you don't know what you're talking about. Or they'll say, okay, I'll play your game to get to the goal. But their mindset is still all about the goal. Right. And they come back nine months later, having gained 100 pounds back. And, yeah. and so they, they still have to really go through that neural plastic change of, of really getting there. And, and that's not easy, but, but it is a long-term process. That's why, like I said before, I will never give up on a client. Like I, I, I know this may take many attempts. It may take different strategies every year that they go through this, they may learn something else, but it's, it's, it's worth the effort knowing we as coaches have to help guide that process because it's very, very slow moving biologically. Yeah. On second pass, what I should have said now that you, you know, brought that up simple, but not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Simple, but not easy. But no it's, it's important stuff to learn. And, and in the context of research like this, if it wasn't for studies like this, where we can visually say, Oh, wow, here's exactly what they studied in this way. And here's what they found. Otherwise, it just becomes an opinion. You know, it's just like, oh, I think this is how it works. But, you know, there's some pretty serious evidence that we've been going through all year. Yeah. And I have to say, I know you were, uh, you, you, you were joking before about, you know, can I get through this one? I thought that was crystal clear, man. I got that. And maybe because I'm listening to Dr. Sapolsky at the same time, because he's talking about exactly what you were just talking about, how the dopamine is 
the precursor to the uh, event or the end result or the goal. Uh, and this makes complete sense. Well, guess, uh, guess where Dr. Huberman works? Oh, really? In Sapolsky's lab. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised. So, so Sapolsky is a, is a neuroscientist who focuses on the endocrine system, the neuroendocrine system. Uh, Huberman is in that same behavioral lab at UCLA, uh, but he, he focuses more on ophthalmology. So he's really interested in how the, the, the visual system, you know, impacts our behavior and the evolutionary things and so forth. But yeah, exact same neurobehavioral lab uh, that Sapolsky founded. I think it's important as a coach to understand this. I mean, this is all brand new to me, uh, you know, shifting from leadership into nutrition and fitness, but uh, uh, it, it, all, it all fits in nicely. And I think the crux of it is, is can you be a good enough teacher uh, that you can um, bring people along to get to where they need to be? And like you just said, it could take years. Mm. Yep, I, I agree. So uh... Steve, Stacy, Ashley, any other questions, comments, anything not make as much sense as you wanted to? Stacy? Well, a lot of it, a lot of it does make sense to me, um, especially with regards to the neurotransmitters involved um, and just the actions that you can take to um, protect yourself, I guess, from falling into a trap. I think it's interesting that neither the dieting or non-dieting group that they were that they were differentiated. That it kind of gives hope to those that feel like they're just going to fail again because they failed so often. That no, you can be successful at this. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I I will. Uh... Well, I've gone through them enough. I was going to say, I've always got clients that I could contrast, but you guys have heard enough of that. Uh, but I agree. Yeah. You can say, look, we, we all experience the same thing. Like it's not that my brain's any different than yours or that I feel anything different physically or how I report it mentally. It's just that when I have that sensation, here's what I do. Here's what you do. You know, if we just start adopting a different strategy, it, you know, you, you guys will be familiar with a lot of these mantras that it's it's the behavior that drives the behavior. I'm sorry, the, the the change. So, you know, we want to wait for the feeling. As soon as I as soon as I'm inspired, I'll do this. No, if you do this, you're gonna feel inspired, and so you got to do it first. And marriage counselors always say that. You know, why well, I, I just don't don't love him anymore. Well, guess what? Start acting like you love him, and you're gonna you're gonna feel a lot of love. It's gonna just bloom. But uh, how about you, Ashley? Any any thoughts? Are you good to go? I had to find the unmute button. Can you hear me? Yep, I, I can. Um, no, I thought that was great. I really liked the video. Um, and I liked the part, like the first thing in the morning, you know, not being on social media or like, you know, the things that you do within that first hour can help really set the tone for the day or, you know, what your brain just went through. And I think of all the times that I'm upset about something before I go to bed or, you know, something triggered me or I allowed myself to feel a certain way. Um, and then in the morning, it's amazing how a lot of times it just, it's not a big deal. So that video was interesting in that regard, but I think then we have to nurture that by not in the instance, ruining 
what our brain just worked so hard all night on. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was interesting. It's something that I've experienced this week in that, um, you know, I had mentioned to you guys that when I opened my new facility in June, I immediately kind of loaded my mornings with clients because that's a prime time. People who want to work out, they want to come in the mornings. So I, I suddenly went from being somebody who stays up late reading and studying. And then I basically didn't even wake up with an alarm. Like when I wake up, I wake up, whether it's six or seven. And so those natural circadian rhythms would do that. Well, all of a sudden, my alarm is ringing at 430 every morning, Monday through Friday, and I'm ripped out of sleep and I'm getting an hour less of sleep and I'm falling asleep midday. It's been a pretty shitty three or four months in many regards. And so when I decided, okay, I have to change my schedule. This is just not good for me. I went back to three, only two days a week do I wake up early. And now in the mornings, again, that I can just wake up on my own. I'm feeling exactly what Huberman talked about. Like I feel like my brain did what he said. Like I sorted through all of the previous day's stuff. They're all on the right shelves now. I wake up with a clean slate, more energized. I mean, there's there's a lot of those. Speaking of research, it's not just a matter of saying we need more sleep. You know, oh, seven hours is better than five. Six hours is better than four. It's why. Like what's happening in our brain to cause that and. I think you're right. This is why people who take self-care seriously and they create some of those boundaries of what they will and won't do, it just makes them resilient to all of the other things in life. Like you, you, you will have better relationships. You will have better thoughts. You will do things in less impulsive ways because your brain is just a healthier organ that's, that's running the show. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. That was a big part of his, his talk. Awesome. Any, uh, anything else? Go ahead, Stacey. So just like a fun fact. Um, when I first started in the pharmaceutical industry, well, we, um, we launched a norepinephrine serotonin reuptake inhibitor that was for depression. At the time, there was really only serotonin reuptake inhibitors and, and Wellbutrin was trying to creep in and it's the only dopamine reuptake inhibitor, but they didn't really know the role that much, it was the, the neurotransmitter that was the least talked about with regards to depression. And it was the one that had the, the worst safety profile because the first time it went through clinical trials, there was too many um, overdose deaths because of the seizures. So they brought it back in, cut the dose in half, put it back out and extended the release. But then two side effects started to happen with the people that were on Wellbutrin. They started losing weight, which is the opposite of what happens with uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors and serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. They started losing weight and they also noticed that they had less, lower cravings for cigarettes. So what did Wellsboro do, uh, Welcome Burrows do at the time? They brought it back in, they pitched it back out. So Zyban is really a different dose of Wellbutrin and Contrave, which is appetite control or weight loss drug, is a different dose, different release of Wellbutrin. They're all bupropion, but different strengths and different releases, all affecting dopamine. Yeah, and and that's why that system is so important. And another thing Huberman said that was really, really key (laughs) is the reason he's doing these things where he picks, as he said, like on average, 25 times a day where I have an impulse to do something, but then I don't. It's not just like, oh, bad Huberman, don't do that. You know, you learn a lesson. 
it conditions your brain to then not have that craving. Cause I'm the same way, dude. Like when, when he talks about like addicted to these, I mean, I'm listening to a podcast or a video, 90% of my waking hours. Like when I walk into the bathroom to go to the bathroom, I'm playing a video. Like that's prime time. I can, I'm not doing anything. I can listen my workouts. I don't listen to music anymore. I listen to podcasts. I'm just constantly wanting information because my brain craves that dopamine. And for him to say, look, man, just take some time out, like let your brain have a break from just steeping in dopamine. And then you'll actually have higher quality experiences. You'll actually enjoy it more, learn more. You'll, you'll crave it in a better way uh, instead of a compulsive way. Like I got to have it. I got to have it. I got to have it. And that's, that's what he's talking about with food. I mean, that was what the whole study was about.